There's this deep turbulence in me, and that's the depth of my yearning for my son. Folks, this is speaking of a radical affection. God is describing a radically liberal affection for his people. And so the idea of a shepherdless sheep to the Jew would have been just a heartbreaking scenario. And this is how the people are described. They are like sheep without a shepherd. Now, if we were living in Jesus's time and his culture, then that would have rang a bell for us because that would have taken us back to Moses in Numbers chapter 27. In Numbers chapter 27, if we were Jews in Jesus' day, we would have recalled the story of when Moses was asking God for a successor for the people, for a successor to take his place. And he prays to the Lord saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And so that's the imagery, the analogy that Jesus is drawing on, the connection that he makes now with Moses. And we're going to begin to see this theme, this motif again, of Jesus as the greater Moses. Moses prayed to God, God send a successor that the people may not be like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus, the greater Moses, sees the people and says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And this is going to do something to Jesus' heart that we'll get to in just a few moments. So we see this motif. Jesus is the greater Moses. He, He, like Moses, his heart is broken when he sees the people and considers them to be like sheep without a shepherd. But then we also, of course, see the theme of of God as the great shepherd. The scriptures, we don't even have time to point all of this out because the Old Testament is filled with analogies of God as the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Isaiah 40, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Or Psalm 95, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And so many more instances we could see. But he sees them like sheep without a shepherd. He is the great shepherd. He's going to say, he's going to say this specifically in John 10. I am the good shepherd. And so here the good shepherd sees the people and his heart is broken because they are, in his words, like sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So this word compassion, we'll slow down just a moment and we're going to talk about this word compassion because this is one of the most powerful words that we find in our New Testament. This is the word translated compassion. What the word literally means is it literally means the bowels a movement, something that so impacts you that it causes the bowels, the innards to move. Now, I I realize that I just painted for everybody in the room just a wonderful picture, right? I mean, that's just a tremendous word picture. But that's what the word means. Something that impacts you emotionally so hard that it's like it has gut punched you. And you can relate to that. Have you ever received news that was so upsetting that it literally made you sick. Something that was so distressing, something that was so distraught 
that you literally began to feel sick at your stomach? And that's, I think, where the idea comes from. Now, this is the word that's translated compassion. This word carries for us tremendous meaning because it's as though the New Testament writers want to purposely reserve this word for Jesus and Jesus alone. It shows up in the New Testament 11 times. Most of those 11 times, well, I guess maybe half of those 11 times, a little bit less, are in this story in the parallels. But it also shows up in other occasions. And the thing to see is that when this word is used in the New Testament, it's always used, with one exception, to describe Jesus. It describes Jesus like this, Matthew 20 and verse 34, and Jesus in pity, same word, in pity, touched their eyes, the two blind men, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed Him. Luke 7 verse 13, and when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her. And other instances that we see, then we also see it show up in some parables. We see it show up in a couple of parables that are about Jesus. For example, Matthew 18, this is the parable of the unforgiving servant. You know, the unforgiving servant who was owed a small debt, but then he owed a much larger debt to his master. And we're told in that parable that out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. So the master in that parable is who? Jesus. We also read it in Luke chapter 10. We know the parable, of course, of what's known of as the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan in the parable is Jesus. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Same word. The one time that the New Testament uses this word that's not specifically addressed to or specifically about Jesus comes in another well-known parable, Luke 15, the parable of what we know of as the prodigal son. And so there it's used to describe the father. He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt, there's the word again, compassion. Now the father in the story of the prodigal son represents God the father. So that's the one instance that it's not specifically about Jesus. But can't you see here a theme? Can't you see here a pattern? How the New Testament writers, it's as though Paul never says, as people of God, have compassion and use this word. Peter never says, have compassion on one another and use this word. Instead, it's a word that the New Testament writers almost feel as though it's so holy and so profound, they only feel the liberty to use this word to describe Jesus and His heart. Because this word speaks so powerfully of this idea of compassion. Compassion, meaning that the distress of the object of your compassion your distress over their distress is so palpable that you feel it. It makes you sick to your stomach. It's like somebody punched you. Now, I want to connect this together with an Old Testament passage found in Jeremiah 31. And I think you'll see the reason I want to connect this together in just a few minutes. But Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah is not an easy book to read. Anybody agree? It's a tedious, difficult book. And I'm sure everybody here has read the prophet Jeremiah. And I'm sure that you've struggled through all 52 chapters of the prophet Jeremiah. And you probably struggled because what does Jeremiah do above and beyond anything else? He hammers the sinfulness of the people. I mean, he's just like, he's just like a ramrod, just 
hammering the sinfulness of the people. For 29 chapters, he's dwelling upon the sinfulness of Israel. Now, if you've read through the story of, of, of Jeremiah and uh, you have put that together, maybe you put this together with something we've talked about on several occasions, which is to say that we as Western readers, we tend to look for the resolution or the climax where? Near the end of the story. That we're just all of our stories, all of our movies, all of our books have trained us to look for the resolution or the climax at the end or near the end. And we've talked about the fact that most Hebrew writers weren't that way. Most Hebrew literature finds its resolution or its climax where? In the middle, right? Not all the time. For example, the story of Ruth, the climax, the the resolution of that is at the end, the story of Esther, same thing. But for many Hebrew stories and poetry, the resolution comes in the middle. And you can see that in the Psalms so clearly. If you just read through the Psalms, you'll see it. What happens is they they start describing how bad things are. Oh, my enemies are all out to get me. My enemies are all around me. They're going to kill me. Everybody hates me. Oh, but the Lord is good. The Lord is faithful. He will preserve me. And then it goes right back to, but my enemies are so strong. They're all around me. And you're going, wait a minute. Didn't we resolve that halfway through? Why are we back into that now? That's because that's how the Hebrew mind thought. The Hebrew mind wanted to see, or the Hebrew reader wanted to see the resolution in the center. Now, when we come to the story of Jeremiah, guess what we find? The resolution in the center. So 52 chapters, the center, almost the center chapters of chapter 30, 31, 32, that's where the resolution is. And you know those chapters. Jeremiah 31. Don't tell me you don't know Jeremiah 31. That's the great Old Testament statement of the new covenant. I will put my law in their heart. I will write it on their heart and no longer will they need to ask one another, do you know me? For they will each know me. I will forgive their sins. I will remember their iniquity no more. Right? That's the great resolution of Jeremiah. So 29 chapters of Israel, you are such Hideous sinners. I cannot believe that you are such adulterers, idolaters. You're such sinful people. Then comes the resolution. And then, starting from chapter 24 through chapter 50, 52, is, uh, is Jeremiah railing against the sins of the nations. Okay? So the center section of Jeremiah, that's where God's resolution is. That's where the statement of the new covenant is. And in that, almost really the, the climax of that center section comes Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 20. Here it is. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. That verse is one of the most powerful verses in your Old Testaments. You'll want to mark it. You'll want to underline it. It is one of the most profound verses in your Old Testament. And we'll see as we walk through it. So he says, is Ephraim, now don't let Ephraim throw you off. Ephraim is just an, another Old Testament word for Israel. Oftentimes Ephraim is, sep, is substituted for Israel. Now when the Old Testament mentions Israel, we got to be careful because sometimes when the Old Testament says Israel, it means all of Israel, all of those who are called Israelites, all of the Hebrews. But sometimes it doesn't mean all who are Israelites, it means true Israel or God's called out people, the ecclesia. So sometimes, and the context tells you, but the, you got to pay attention to the context. Sometimes Israel in the Old Testament is 
God's true people. Sometimes it's just all of the Hebrews. The context here is, for sure, God's true called out people because it says, is Ephraim or Israel, is Israel my dear son? So clearly, we're talking about the true Israel, the true people of God. Is Israel or is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? How does that language strike you when God says, my darling child? Not just my child, but my darling child. Does that remind you of places like, for example, Psalm 17 and verse 8, where the psalmist says, keep me as the apple of your eye? Or Zechariah 2 and verse 8, when God says, when you touch them, you're touching the apple of my eye? Do you think of God thinking of you as my darling son, my darling daughter? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, and God just spoke against him for 29 chapters, and he spoke against him harshly. As often as I speak against him, because he is indeed sinful, as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Now, when God says, I remember him, we shouldn't think here, that God's speaking of recollecting in His mind. God is the possessor of all true facts, eternally. So God doesn't remember facts. God doesn't have to think and say, oh yeah, I I remember Israel. God is the eternal possessor of all true facts. So God, when He says, I remember Him still, He's not saying, I remember Him as though the opposite was forget Instead, he's saying, I remember him as though the opposite is forsake. So remember is set over against forsake instead of forget. I remember him. I don't forsake him. I don't forsake him. Even though I speak against him, I do not forsake him. I remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. Now, in the Hebrew, there is a standard word for heart, and that heart, that word is love. And that's the word that we find throughout the Old Testament to describe heart. Always, it's never the organ, it's always a metaphorical heart. But instead, Jeremiah uses a different word for heart. Instead, he uses the word mea. And my Hebrew pronunciation is terrible, but mea is the word. And that word means, guess what? Bowels. In fact, anybody using a King James? Using the King James, it should say bowels. My bowels or my heart, because that's the literal meaning of that word. The literal meaning of that word is intestines or, or guts. 2 Samuel 20 is, is used to describe when, when Joab stabs uh, Amasa and his entrails or his intestines come out. Sometimes it's used metaphorically to speak of that which is most deeply us that which is most deeply and profoundly you. For example, Genesis 15 and verse 4, when Abraham has been waiting on the child of promise and the child of promise seems to be delayed or not coming and Abraham tries to do things on his own with uh, Ishmael and God says, no, no, that's not my plan. He says, instead, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. Instead, your very own son shall be your heir. And that's the word, very own. It speaks of something that is so intimately you, like bowels, something that's so internal and so synonymous 
with you, with your being, with your character. So God says, therefore, my heart yearns. Now, what's that word yearn? Yearn doesn't mean to love. It doesn't even mean to bless. Instead, the word here literally means agitated, turbulent. It's most often translated something like turmoil, like Psalm 43 and verse 5, or Psalm 46 and verse 3, the roar and the foam of the waters. Or 1 Kings chapter 1, when, it's, when, uh, when Joab says, he hears the trumpet and says, what does this uproar in the city mean? Uproar, turbulence, turmoil, roar. So God says, as far often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my inner, my bowels, yearn. There's this turbulence in me. Is anybody seeing a connection? There's this deep turbulence in me, and that's the depth of my yearning for my son. Folks, this is speaking of a radical affection. God is describing a radically liberal affection for His people. An affection that to be put into words, comes through the Scriptures in words speaking of your intestines, your deep inner bowels, and a roar and a turmoil in your bowels like the storm on a sea. And God says, that is the yearning that I feel for my true Son. So God is saying that in the depths of who He is, in the very depths of His beingness, there is a turbulence for His people, a yearning for His people that is so strong and so pure and so driving that God describes it in words such as this. So brothers and sisters, how how do you think of, when you think of how God feels about you, what comes to your mind? You know that God loves you. You know that God sent His Son to die for you. You know that God cares for you. But when you think of God, and specifically how God feels for you, do you have thoughts that come to mind that are that strong? That the strength of God's affection for you is so turbulent such a roaring strength that God will use metaphors and phrases such as this to describe His deep, strong, and radical affection for His people. So as God describes His innermost bowels turbulently longing for His people, let's ask ourselves, If God, who is invisible, if He were to make that visible for us, if He were to show us what that looks like, what do you think it would look like? You don't have to guess. Because what it looks like is a carpenter from Nazareth looking about upon the people And saying they're like sheep without a shepherd. 
and down to my inner core. I'm so distraught over their misery. I'm so deeply moved that it's like my bowels have been experiencing a hurricane. That's what Jeremiah 31 and verse 20 would look like if it showed up on earth, which of course it did. 